not everyone is created to be uh, the kind of activist on the street. And not everyone is created to be a preacher, teacher. So it's important to kind of know what your lane is. And you're not going to know your lane, obviously, unless you experiment and you test things out and you fail miserably and pick yourself up and have a conversation with God. But in all of that, what I've written in the book as well is you pray because this is not, this isn't about the history books. It really isn't. This is about what is God inviting the church into during this time and all of the different parts of the beloved church. And I cannot believe that the invitation is to hide in fear and to build walls that separate us and them. And so how will we know? We need to pray, we need to, we need to be in scripture, we need to be discerning, and then you do it, and then you do it. I will wait for I will wait for you Knowing that you will draw near to me Cause I was made for you I was made for you I was made to be your presence Hey there! Welcome to the Can I Say This at Church podcast. I am Seth, your host. I am so glad that you downloaded today's episode. If you think about your week, your day, if I'm honest, a lot of times the first thing that I do when I get up in the morning is uh, turn on my phone, uh, check Twitter, check Facebook, and maybe I check email. Then I get in the shower, and I'm ashamed to admit that. I have a feeling that you do the same thing. And so what do we find when we're on Facebook? I find people just yelling out into the void. I find people voicing their opinion, maybe to a question that wasn't answered. And if it is a question that is answered, be it religious, political, your favorite sports team, whatever it is, whatever you feel like you need to talk about, I find recently, and over the last decade really, since the advent of social media, that we poorly, very, very poorly raise our voice. The world that we live in is so hyper-connected, and I feel like it is sometimes a daunting task to figure out how to speak well what needs to be said, and how to speak that in love, and how to own what is true in an offensive and a non-offensive way at the same time. And that is what the interview is about today. So I sat down and I... I I sat down on the internet with Kathy Kong, who has written a beautiful book entitled Raise Your Voice. You will hear in this interview what we are called as Christians to do, how we should proactively engage in conversations, how when you find what you feel like you're being called to say to the world, how to do so in a way that will help further the church and further our communities, because let's be honest, not everyone is in church, but we are still in a conversation with people whether or not they are. 
And I think that's key. We have to remember that. So I hope that you enjoy it. Here we go. Let's talk to Kathy. Kathy Kong, thank you so much for joining the Can I Say This at Church podcast. Uh, I also can't thank you enough uh, and InterVarsity Press for sending me a, a copy of your book. I, I Sometimes when I sit down to read a book and I try, if I'm being honest, I try to read every everything that's sent to me, especially if I'm going to speak to the author because I feel like it is a disservice and it's not genuine if I can't do that. And so uh, yours I actually sat down and I read in one sitting, which isn't every book, but I genuinely, voraciously enjoyed reading it. And I think I can't wait to hear the feedback from it as it comes out. But thank you again so much for writing it and thank you for coming on to the show. Oh, thank you. I Thank you so much. And that intro and hearing about your experience with the book means a great deal. I have just gotten a physical copy of the book, and there is this excitement and also a wave of nausea that is coming over as I'm realizing <laughs> that people are actually going to read this. <laughs> why, why nausea? I think it's, it's the nervousness, right? It's the what, what will people think? And usually, I am not one who gives two hoots about what people think. Um, but I have had to do a lot of business with God in this process of writing and putting out these words into the public. So it was one thing to blog. That's, that's a very different experience. And it's a different experience to be invited into a space as a speaker. But I had to wrestle with ego and thoughts of, you know, what it means to be a successful author and why am I doing this and envy and all of those wonderful, icky human emotions mm -hmm. as I got ready to get this book out into the world. Well, I'd like to start where I start with, with most guests, uh, well, at yeah. least first time guests, and, and hopefully we'll make you recurring as the years go by, because I can't see yeah. myself not continuing to do this in the future. I'm, I'm, I'm enjoying it. But what would you, what is kind of your upbringing and kind of what has pointed you in the direction, those brief milestones in your life of, of the story of you? Like, how did you get from where you were and wherever that was to mm. being the person that was able to do the wrestling with God and, and be very honest in your book? There's a lot of personal stories in it. So what does that journey just sort of look like? Uh, the journey, I guess, in my mind starts, um, with my family and we immigrated from Seoul, South Korea in 1971. I was eight months old, so I have no memory of crying my way across the ocean and settling in Chicago and growing up as a child 
of immigrants and a child who who didn't know what it meant to be just an American kid in the north side of Chicago, going to school. I had no idea what it meant to uh, be different. All of the kids were different. We all were very different. And most of my close friends, we all were immigrants. I still remember the smells and the sounds and the languages of my different friends who were Greek and Filipino and Indian. And that was very normal. And then moving to the suburbs when I was in second grade was the first time I realized that what I experienced in Chicago was not necessarily the norm. (laughs) And it was the first time I encountered actually so many white Caucasian people my entire school. (laughs) <laughs> and 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 what that meant for me and how suddenly my face was weird my name was strange the language i spoke at home was considered exotic the smells were not smells you wanted to carry with you into the public all of those types of experiences and the wrestling with who am I, how will I choose to present myself in public, uh, what does it mean to be a child of God, because that's what I'm being told at home, but that's not what I'm experiencing in school. And all of that wrapped up in the practice of journaling, which was something that my father had encouraged me and my sister to do when we were growing up. And so I have various notebooks and then actual little diaries with cute little brass locks on them. And, you know, my dad, I think, gave us that gift and encouraged us to journal, not because he thought that I would become a writer, but really it was to practice my penmanship (laughs) and to practice (laughs) writing, right, to be a good student. And for me, that just kind of became a wonderful outlet of being able to be fully honest and not have a filter and, um, and just write what I was experiencing, the good and the bad and all of the angst and all of that. So, you know, it was ra- being raised in a Christian, but a distinctly Korean immigrant Christian home with strong memories and roots for the first few years of school in a very diverse community, north side of Chicago, and then moving to the suburbs where for the rest of my life, I would wrestle with whether or not I fit in, whether or not I was American enough, whether I was human enough, whether or not my experiences and my family was enough. I think all of that continued to follow me into my young adulthood and into my early years of being a newspaper reporter and and parenting and marriage and all of that. And here we are 
squarely in my midlife. <laughs> Are you, so this is your first book, right? Yes. So it's my first solo book. I was part of a multi-author book about 12 years ago, also from InterVarsity Press called More Than Serving Tea. Hmm. I haven't read that one, but I also don't really like tea. And I have a feeling that that has nothing to do with the book or very little, <laughs> but yes, correct. <laughs> but um, I'm more of a coffee guy. I, so the title of your book is raise your voice. And throughout the book, you've interwoven finding your voice and why that's important. And in the world that we live in now, uh, if you turn on the news or if yes. you go to church, depending on your church, but I feel like every church is going to have this in some way, shape or form. My personal experience has been once you feel laser focused on what you feel like your voice is, and, and with that comes what you're called to to speak truth to. And that could be mm -hmm. preaching, that could be you know foster ministry, that could be anything. Um, mm -hmm. But I find that once you begin to dig into what you're passionate about and what you feel called to do, that there is an inherent cost at expressing your voice, um, be it a podcast, be it a blog, be it a, a book, uh, be it a Sunday school. And so y you touch on that a bit. So why is it worth finding a voice? And is it is it worth bearing that cost? Oh, it's absolutely worth bearing the cost. But I'll be completely honest, there have been many times over the years where I have often wondered whether or not it was worth bearing any cost. It is not fun to receive hate mail. It is not fun to read hate mail. It's not fun to read um, nasty comments on a blog or an editorial. None of those are fun. And they will make you question whether or not you've done the right thing and whether or not you've done, whether or not you've been obedient to God, ultimately. Um, but I would say that if you choose to stay silent, you know, we often hear the phrase these days, you know, if you, um, you don't want to be on the wrong side of history. Um, my response to that is, you know, ultimately it's obedience to God. I don't know what history will say about any of us. And, um, and as, a, as an individual, one single little person in the world, I don't suspect that history will say very much, if anything, about me personally. But I believe as a Christian, ultimately my responsibility is, am I being obedient to the things that God is inviting me to? And... I wrote this book in part because I saw so many of my friends and people I interacted with wrestling with that sense of, I should say something, or I should do something. I should express X, Y, or Z. I think this is what I'm made to do, but. And the cost of not doing that, not only do I think a little piece of you dies every time you <laughs> shut that voice down, I also think that it is refusing an invitation from God. And not all invitations from God are really pretty and exciting. <laughs> um, 
but I do believe that those are the invitations that we should be listening to the most and most carefully. And what does it mean to gain the world, right? Mm-hmm. We, we learn those things in church, but I think in the practical day-to-day, that's why I wrote the book, that this isn't about, you know, the, the one time you have to decide whether or not you're going to raise your hand and stand up in a meeting of 2,000 people. <laughs> that may or may not happen, but really it's the daily obedience and faithfulness to the things that God is asking you to speak up on. So how do you how do you then speak? Well, I'm trying to word this right. Yeah. If so so I am a white man. Um mm-hmm. and, and um <laughs> there's not much I can do about that and that's fine. How do you elevate well no, elevate's not the word. How do you try to speak and and in my case it would be about theology and about the love of Christ and I find that when I say that and I try to raise a voice that says, no, 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 no. We, we don't need to be concerned uh, about Trump and North Korea as Christians. We need to be hoping that we can love the people regardless of the outcome, or Syrian refugees, or Muslims, or, or anything. I find when I—and right. that's, that's kind of the voice that, at least for this year, that I've been called, that I feel personally called to, to say, you know, hey, why have we come so little— since the lynchings? Why have we not yeah. made any progress since redlining? Why why is this still happening? And yeah. and I find that people don't listen. And so yeah. even if you have found what you feel like you're called to speak about, how do you be how do you use your platform effectively? Well, you know, I think first it's wrestling with that idea of platform because I don't believe everyone necessarily um kind of in the the pseudo Christian celebrity sense has mm-hmm. uh, a platform but I do think that everyone has the opportunity and the responsibility ultimately to say something and to do something those words or actions will all be different for everyone and that's also something that I remind people it's you know, not everyone is going to be the person who goes to do um, a letter writing campaign or not everyone is going to feel comfortable marching in a protest. But ultimately, what is going on that we as Christians forget and are not listening to the very prayer that we pray every Sunday, right? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And I think what I say to people is maybe we've been way too focused on the heaven part and way too focused on the idea that we just need to get people to heaven and make decisions to become a Christian. And we've totally forgotten about the part of your kingdom on earth. And that's where I, at least for my sisters and brothers in Christ, I, that's where I kind of battle with them and say, no, this is not an opt-out kind of situation. This is very much you, you – there is no opt-out. If you are praying that prayer, if you say you believe in the gospel, 
the gospel is not about how many people we can get to pray the sinner's prayer. <laughs> which which Believe isn't it really or, even in the Bible. <laughs> it, exactly. Exactly. And um, and so I, I think here, especially here in the U.S., we have this kind of brand of Christianity that is about, and particularly evangelicals, have this brand of Christianity that is about getting to heaven. And whatever happens here on earth, whatever, scorched earth, Mm-hmm. We're all we all have our tickets to heaven and good for us. And the older I've gotten and the more I've wrestled with scripture, I've realized, oh no, 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 no. <laughs> that you know, it's a bonus that we will spend eternity with God. But in the meantime, we are here on earth and what is it that we're supposed to be doing? We're supposed to be proclaiming the gospel and the gospel is not only about the ticket to heaven <laughs> it's about how we are going to interact with one another with the earth with all of creation how are we going to interact and and that's why i think it's important that's why i encourage people to figure out what is it that you're passionate about What are the things that you care deeply about? What are the big and little things that happen day to day that you know have to be different? And how will you speak into that, whether it's with your friends, your neighborhood, your kids? Well, that's the hard part is is the kids. I said something. (laughs) What did I say? I said something last night on Facebook, and and I'll probably edit this out because I don't know that it's relevant, but it, it comes to the top of my head now. Um, I said something about how have we, I watched, I assume you have Netflix. Everybody, yes. I think, has Netflix. And so there's a new uh, miniseries or documentary that documents, I think it's nine or ten rappers, and I will say the language is quite vulgar. But mm-hmm. one of the ones that I watched, and I, I didn't watch many of them, is on T.I. He's a rapper from Atlanta, uh-huh. and he's talking a lot about racial reconciliation. And then he mm-hmm. engages with a lot of older people and says, you know, I'm doing this wrong. Like when I speak, nobody hears me saying anything. And so Mm. I'm going to look back and I'm going to go speak to these other people that were living when Martin Luther King was alive and Mm. ask them how they actually did things with him. And so that maybe I can do this better. And you can see the light bulbs go off every once in a while. Right. Talking about our children. um, At the end of that, he's in, I think it somewhere at Montgomery, there's like a racial reconciliation um, museum, and it's not the most recent one. It's it's an older one. And him and his children are walking through and listening to the stories and watching news broadcasts about, you know, we don't mix, any farmer will tell you, you don't mix your black chickens with your white chickens because it mm. makes both chickens produce less eggs. It, just stuff like that. And you can just see the face of his son. And then they go and they read a story of, I think his name is Emmett, uh, Emmett Tilly. Emmett Tilly, something like that. A gentleman that got Emmett Till. Yeah. Yes. Uh, and I and I basically went on Facebook and said, I don't understand how we've gone so so short a distance. Like if we think of history in in, in terms of distance, like we we've gone one foot when we should have been five hundred miles further, and we've only gone a, like how have we only gone this far? Mm. Um, and and many of my friends, some are you know, African American, some are uh, Hispanic, and and they all had said, you know, it's a great question. How do we mm-hmm. fix it? And I was like, I don't know. It's going to have to, something that we do has to change the hearts of our children 
so that yes. this is different in 50 years. And I've yes. asked that of other people, and I don't know what that answer is, um, except for to just talk about it. And it's un- they are very uncomfortable conversations with, with a nine-year-old oh. in this case. Um, my five-year-old's <laughs> a little bit young for that, but um, you know, just being honest that this, this exists, and it's not, it's not okay. So, yeah. And I would say even, I would say even with your five-year-old, there, there are age appropriate ways to have the conversation. And I wonder if that's part of it is that, um, why things have not gone further is that, uh, we have kind of made conversations about race and injustice Uh, level 300 conversations that wait (laughs) until patterns are way established and values are already established and have been in practice for too long. And then at that point, we can have conversations and we can come to some sort of agreement, but it's all at an intellectual level. It's really not at a heart level. It's not at a level in which we're making active decisions that are different. And, um, and my kids are older. So my kids are 22, almost 19 and 16. And we continue to have those conversations, what it looks like to be able to just even yesterday, for example, um, we drove down to the University of Illinois Champaign-Urbana to drop off our youngest at camp. Um, he's at camp for track, throwing discus and shot put. And, you know, even even in the process of signing him up for that, we had the conversation like, look, this camp costs a couple hundred dollars. You, We need to know, you need to know as a family, this is something that we have prioritized, but it also means that you have access to this and not every child has access to this. And you need to be aware and look and pay attention when you go to camp. Who are the kids who are at camp with you? Where do they go to school? How far have they traveled? Um, You know, how about your coaches? How about the student the college students who are going to be your coaches during the week. Where are they from? Where did they go to high school? How did they get into track? You know, ask, ask the questions. And those are the conversations that we've had all along in helping our kids understand that talking about differences is a good thing. And I wonder at some level why we haven't come as far as we'd like to think we should have or could have is that at least what I hear a lot in the church, and this goes back to your question about the cost, is that I'm often told if I point out the division, I am being divisive. Mm -hmm. And I think that we have translated that into if we talk about race, then you're racist. If we talk about differences, then we're focusing on the wrong things. And to all of that, I would say, oh, no, 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 no. (laughs) We have it the wrong way. We do need to talk about the differences. I think that 
that's part of the beauty of how God's created us is that we are different. And how can we not learn? How can we learn to appreciate that if we don't actually know how to define and distinguish what those differences are? And, and we are so quick to say, oh, but you know, at the end of the day, we're all humans, <laughs> which I don't think people actually believe. I, I really don't think that we would treat each other this way if at the core we believed we all were created in God's image. And so we don't know how to talk about that because we don't know how to talk about how we're all created in God's image when we are so different, when we speak different languages, we come from different places, we may not even believe in the same things. Yeah. We treat each other horribly, horribly. Yeah, by default, which is yes. yeah, which is that's a different that's a different podcast episode altogether, but but yeah, I I agree. Either we all bear the image of Christ um or none of us do. And mm-hmm. and the problem is we treat each other like none of us do. Unless you're in my yeah. tribe, unless you look like me or yes. you go to my church yeah. or we're on the yep. same baseball team or whatever. But yeah. for the most part, 97% of the time we act like no one else except me um, bears the image of Christ or the image of God. Reputation and you made yourself nothing for us, and you gave up your life for the least of me. You answered the gates of death. There is um, there's there's a big theme through your book, and I, and I like it because I don't read the book of Esther really mm-hmm. ever, um, and that's probably my fault and. I'm going to rectify that. And matter of fact, I have since reading your book rectified that. Um, I found there's pieces of the Old Testament that I avoided, and I think that was because I didn't want to hear what was in it. Um, like like yeah. texts like Amos talking about, you know, mm-hmm. when, we, when, we, when we worship, you're, you're doing it. Like you don't treat God and worship like a whore. And a pro- like I don't like your songs. You're, yes. you're, mm, and I, don't, I didn't want to hear that. I've since yes. then learned to hear that. And it's somehow changed the way I worship. But I like the way that you interweave Esther through. And I was hoping that you could talk a bit about that. Like, how does, how does Esther, as, as we read through that as, as Western evangelical Christians, or as any other version of any other religion, this is a, a fairly large audience that listens, mm-hmm. how, as we read the book of Esther, do we, can, can that help us inform who we are and how we should act when we're trying to draw that line of, I'm going to embrace who I am, but I'm also called to be something foreign, uh, you know, as I bear the image of Christ and I'm trying to, to be like Jesus. Like, how do we, how do we ride that line? Yeah. Well, you know, Esther is one of those books I grew up with in Sunday school and even my Sunday school experience kind of ties in with this is that, I I never took a hard look at Esther until I was probably in my late 20s, early 30s, because the way Esther was taught was, you know, she won a beauty pageant 
and became queen and saved her people. Yay! (laughs) (laughs) She did it. (laughs) She did it, and she was awesome, and it's Queen Esther. And for those of us who are old enough who listen to the podcast, you know, the felt board you know, little paper felt board stories. That that's what I remember about Esther. And Esther was white, and she won a beauty pageant, and it was great. And and even with that type of storytelling, I could not relate to Esther because people like me don't win beauty pageants. We don't we don't win Miss America. We are not, um, you know. We, we're just not in that space. Mm-hmm. And um, and then the idea of becoming queen is ridiculous because, you know, I was not able to watch the most recent royal wedding uh, because I was traveling, but um, but I did pay attention on social media. And there is, I have, I must confess, I have this strange fascination with royal weddings. And maybe I'll just blame, you know, Sunday school and Queen Esther on that, but this idea of, you know, going from commoner to becoming royal is so bizarre. And yet that actually is the story of us, right? We, we are out, we are created in God's image, but when we, um, we're taught when we become Christians, we are part of God's special family, but with Esther, the more I learned about Esther and heard different women of color preach on Esther, I took a deep dive. And I think that particularly white American Christians should hesitate to think of themselves as Esther. <laughs> um, Esther is... She is a Jewish woman growing up in exile in Persia. And when I say woman, I say that loosely because she's probably a teenager. Mm. And when I realized that she had another name and that she hid her Jewishness, I thought, oh my gosh, that's me. That's how I grew up. Because my name isn't Kathy, it's actually Kyunga. That's my Korean given name. And I don't use that name because, well, because when we immigrated, my parents figured that no one was going to bother learning how to pronounce that. So they gave me Kathy. And um, and as I grew up, I it wasn't because my parents told me to hide my Korean culture, it was because I was ashamed of my culture. And white U.S. culture tells me that in order to succeed as an American, we say that America is a melting pot, right? So you assimilate and you lose any distinctive characteristics you have and you just kind of melt and become one, Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, and that means you lose the uniqueness of who you are and what you bring and your culture and the things that are different. And so the story of Esther, I think, is an important one. One, because I think it 
begs the question whether or not that narrative of the melting pot is really what we want in our church or in the church, capital C, and what it means for Esther to wrestle with that moment when she recognizes her people are in danger of genocide. And will she be who she's pretended not to be for more than a year? And, um, and the other part in Esther that just floors me every time is that idea of language and how the the edict to destroy the Jews is written in every language, in every dialect, so that everybody understands what is going to happen to them and what is going to happen, what's being allowed. And that idea of a heart language, being able to understand what's happening to you, is written in your heart language and is communicating your own destruction. And I don't think I write this in the book, but I've also wrestled with that in recent times is how have we translated the gospel into something that tells people that your culture has to die and um, you're no longer allowed to sing the songs you love to sing, as we talked about, mm-hmm. and um, sing in a language that you love to sing, to read scripture in the language that you love, to be who you are fully in in church, that somehow we're supposed to all sing the same way and love the same songs and... Um, Pray the same prayer in the one language that is allowed in our church. And um, and so I, I hear a lot people kind of wanting to imagine themselves as either Esther or Mordecai, you know, as the one who kind of gives the challenge to Esther, you know, for who knows for such a time as this that you have come into royal position. And imagining ourselves as Esther... Um, but here in the U S I think more of us are probably not Esther or Mordecai. <laughs> <laughs> so who are we? Um, um, I think sometimes we are more like Haman and Haman's wife and friends. And we, um, and I, and I tread carefully on this because I don't want this turned around to tell people who speak out against racial injustice that they are Haman and that they are offended at every little thing. That is not what I am saying. What I am saying is that I think particularly as Christians, we are too easily offended at people, whether or not they're in or outside of the church, because we have also drawn those lines pretty clearly, Mm -hmm. um, that we are too offended by the questioning of whether or not we are living out the gospel. And we get all our, we, our undies get in a bunch and then we yell and scream and say, and point fingers at those social justice warriors. They do not have the gospel, <laughs> blah. 
And so we become like Haman and we become like his friends and his wife who say, yeah, let's get rid of them. You know, let's, let's kick them out. Yeah. Let's destroy their, let's destroy them. Yeah. Because that's not of us, you know, and we, we, and I have said this to a lot of my white friends. If the worst thing that could happen to you is that you are called racist if that's the worst thing that can happen, why are you so afraid? Mm, that's a good question. I agree with that question Whole, right? wholeheartedly. And, yeah. Yeah. And, and so I think that's part of it is that I look at Esther and I go, wow, Haman got a little carried away with the little power that he had and took advantage of it because one person did not bow one person didn't bow. So it wasn't enough to ruin Mordecai. He took it way beyond and said, you know what? I'm just going to kill them all off, all the Jews. And so I think, honestly, going again back to that question of how have we not come so far, I, I, I look at Esther <laughs> <laughs> and I think, oh, I think maybe we need to look at Haman and see what he's done and see what he does and maybe think about how the church has taken offense at people we would say are outsiders saying, you don't live the way Jesus lived. Yeah. And instead of listening to that, we listen to, you know, we listen to the people we listen to and say, oh, we need to keep those people out. We need to do all sorts of crazy things because we don't want to hear that. We don't want to, we don't want to question whether or not it's a good idea to have anybody bow to us. And, and then for me, again, you know, circling back to Esther is that sense of like, how, for how long did I just kind of, for survival, pretend I wasn't who I am? Because it's, it is a matter of survival. It is a matter of there's a cost to pay when you speak up and you become who God has created you to be. And Esther was no dummy. She knew <laughs> if she went to the king and he didn't recognize her she would die. You yeah. know, I'll, I'll be honest, uh, you know, I say I would die for Christ, but I don't want to. <laughs> right? Like, I, I don't want to. <laughs> but, you know, and, and I, but I'm being honest and I, I say that because I don't, I don't want, I don't really want to suffer. I don't, I know that's what I signed up for, but if I'm being perfectly honest, that's not the life I want to choose. Yeah. And, and I think too easily we say, yeah, that's what I would do. And I think, you know, I, I, I'm with Esther. <laughs> I would say, you know, Mordecai, I don't want to die. Yeah. I, f I find it. So when I hear you say all that, I find it odd that 
that the version of church that we in this country practice most often is that it's very it's very you're going to do it this way we're going to sing this songs so we're only going to sing verses 1 and 3 cuz we don't like the words in 4 there's, yes. there's two and and if you think about the way that that Jesus ministered, he didn't do that. That's literally what the Pharisees and Sadducees were doing. Of no, you're not allowed to come here. Don't touch him. You're not allowed. Stay over there. Stay in your lane. Be quiet. You know that you're not allowed to be here. And then yes. you know when Paul and when all of the other disciples go out, you know, I mean, Peter was basically told, "You can go to the Gentiles now. They are not Jews, and you're still gonna be right with me. You're yep. not gonna get." tainted in some bad way because they do it differently than you. Um, yes. And I almost hear him saying, if I if I try to put myself in that mind's eye of, I made them to worship the way that I made them to worship, and it's not your job to redo that. Your right. job is to tell them where I'm at so that they can yep. direct their worship appropriately. So, yes. Yeah. Yep. I am curious. So there was a concept in your book called Midwestern Nice. And yeah. so when you talked a minute ago about, um, you know, evangelicals getting their undies in a bunch, is that yes. an example of that? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you know, it's an example in multiple ways because that's not actually how I speak. Um, I wouldn't necessarily undie, say undies in a bunch um, <laughs> because that's probably as much as I could get away with in church. <laughs> And, um, and it is, it's this very passive aggressive, like being polite and smiling, um, or maybe like Bless looking like you, right. Like you might be smiling, but you also might be scowling. I can't tell. And, um, and it, yes. So that's what Midwestern nice is about. And I say that as a Midwestern girl, having lived my entire life in the Midwest and minus the eight months in Seoul, Korea. And, um, and this sense of like, I think they like me or maybe they don't, but they weren't outright mean mm -hmm. to me. And, and that's almost worse. <laughs> yeah. Well, and in growing up in Southwest Texas, that as I was read you as gosh, as I read your words about that type of mentality, it reminded me of uh, you know a, a group of of people getting together and basically they want to gossip or talk badly yes. about someone. So what we'll say first is bless their heart, Lord love them. Yes, but. And now I'm allowed to say whatever I want to say because bless their heart. <laughs> so um, exactly. <laughs> uh, so. As so, in closing, as we're coming into the end of our time, so as people are listening to this, and as people, whether or not they think they are, uh, I feel like every time we post something on social media or every time we say something out loud, we are in some way, shape, or form speaking up, um, yeah. whether or not we realize it, and which is really scary again when we think about kids that we are subconsciously modeling the way that we should handle people different than us. Mm -hmm. Um, which is a very, there's no instruction manual and that should be on page one when you're given this child and a birth certificate that should be, you know, we, <laughs> we, we check your manual that you initialed that you read that. And then we mm -hmm. check that you have a car seat before you're allowed to leave and, mm -hmm. and now go and be whatever you're going to be. So in, in closing, what would you have us think of? So what should be our practice and our rhythms 
as we find ourselves having an elevated aggression towards an idea or being moved to say something, whether or not it's currently in the culture, you know, what should we do before we do that? How should we sit with that while we're either typing it or saying it out loud? And then should we let it breathe? Should we just continue to yell into the void? And what do we do after? Mm. Uh, I, I pray before I do anything, I pray. And then while I'm doing it, I'm praying. And after I hit send or post or whatever it is on whatever platform it is in social media, I pray. Um, I pray before I choose to say something in person. Um, and I pray during, and I pray after. I think um, there are lots of you know real practical things that we can and should be doing. I think in a world where we are connected 24 seven, um, we should be disconnecting. We should be turning off our phones. We should leave them at home. We should do all of those things. Um, and, uh, but on a, on a very kind of practical, normal level for those who are listening and are Christians, I would say, this is as much about your relationship with God and your discipline and practice of prayer than anything. That I, um, when people interact with me, it is often first online. And th- I get asked, you know, how do you decide? How do you? And I think the impression, if you see people online, it's that they are just going gangbusters because they saw something and two seconds later they are responding. And what you don't see, at least for me, is that I've been praying and I, I know deeply the things that are important that I'm passionate about what God has invited me to. And that is what I'm responding to. And that there are many other things that I'm not posting about that I'm not reacting to. And so I want to encourage people to just take a breath, take a breath, um, that your prayer doesn't have to be the bless their hearts and a massive gossip session, (laughs) also known as prayer time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> out loud. But, I have an unspoken right, prayer about, about Kathy. I have an unspoken yes. prayer. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes. Um, uh, we, did we go to the same church? This is so weird. Um, Probably. <laughs> <laughs> is, that, um, is that if you see something, you hear something, take a minute and think about and pray about what is it you're feeling? Why are you feeling that? Uh, what else is happening in your heart, in your body, in your mind? Um, what is the first knee-jerk reaction that you have? Don't do that. <laughs> Pray, even in that split second. And then discern what it is that you should be doing. Because like I said, not everyone is created to be uh, the kind of activist on the street, uh, and not everyone is created to be a preacher, teacher. So it's important to kind of know what your lane is, 
And you're not going to know your lane, obviously, unless you experiment and you test things out and you fail miserably and pick yourself up and have a conversation with God. But in all of that, what I've written in the book as well is you pray because this is not, this isn't about the history books. It really isn't. This is about what is God inviting the church into during this time and all of the different parts of the beloved church. And I cannot believe that the invitation is to hide in fear and to build walls that separate us and them. And so how will we know we need to pray? We need to, we need to be in scripture. We need to be discerning and then you do it and then you do it. Yeah. And that's the hard part right there. That's yeah. the, the doing part. Uh, Cause you, yeah. you have to, you have to let go of, of pride to do so. And, Nobody likes to do that. Kathy, by the time this releases, the book will have been out probably the week prior. And so that is on sale everywhere, correct? Barnes & Noble, Books A Million, Amazon, yes. uh, everywhere. So where would you direct people? How can they best um, you know, get a hold of a copy of your book? And how would you have them engage with you? Where would you, where would you direct them to? Sure. I would say um, if you have a local bookseller, a local bookstore – Go there and support your local uh, shop and ask them to order it for you, ask them to stock it. Um, and if not, you know, go to one of those big boxes or go online and you can find the book. And then where you can engage with me, I am all over. Um, my blog is kathykong.com and I will be more active there once the book launches. (laughs) And then I'm also on Twitter and Instagram. uh, And my handle there is at Ms. M.S. Kathy Kong. And then I'm also on Facebook. So I'm in all of those places. And uh, I love to engage with readers and people on those platforms. And, um, And then hopefully I'll be in physical spaces, we have yet to determine any of those, but um, hopefully I'll be in physical spaces in the months to come and would love to interact with people face to face. If I could, I would like to lobby for the Charlottesville area of Virginia. <laughs> so, Yes. Yes. Um, And if you know of a church or an organization that would invite me, that would be fabulous. (laughs) I I know of a few. I'll I'll email them today. Yeah, I'm sad. I I had the, um, I missed seeing uh, uh, Diana Butler Bass. It was like on the same weekend of one of my kids' birthdays. And I'm like, she's like, you should come see me. I would love, it was like the weekend after I spoke with her. I was like, man, well, I can't because baby girl's turning a birthday, but that's okay. <laughs> so uh, I was gonna, I was gonna lose way too many dad points there. Yes. So, yes. Um, and then, uh, I don't often say this, but I usually don't know, but you have, for those that, that travel often, and, and I know many of you listen to this podcast or other books while you drive, um, Kathy has recorded her own voice to her own words, uh, for the audio version of the book, correct? Which I assume is at audible. And I don't know where else those type of books are. Yes. But I will say some of the best books that I've found to listen to are not read by actors uh, because they don't know the emotion and the the reason behind the words. Uh, and yes. so if you're one that listens to books as opposed to reading them, get that version. Um, 
I find those are sometimes they're better. <laughs> um, yes. I don't I don't know why. You can't take notes because you're driving, but but sometimes hearing you say your own words right. is is powerful. So right, Kathy, thank you again. I appreciate you coming on. Thank you so much, Seth. So what are you called to do? What do we do with this? You've listened for the last 30 to 40 minutes. You hear some of the pitfalls. You know some of the pitfalls, as do I. And we also know what it looks like and sounds right to do it right, because those are the things that get heard. Either the really, really hateful ones or the ones that are done right. And there's something deep down inside us when we raise our voice There is something pure and holy when we are able to do it right. Something that resonates at a level that is beyond us. Something true. And I think if we can engage in it in prayer, as Kathy said, when we speak, we pray. Before we speak, we pray. As we speak, we pray. And then we let it rest. And while we let it rest, we pray. I hope and I pray that we can learn how to do that, myself included. beautiful music that you heard in today's episode is from the indie worship band from Manchester United Kingdom, Rivers and Robots. Their music is beautiful. They have a new album coming out this fall. You heard a portion of that album in today's episode. It's the last song that you heard. So I do hope that you go out and support them. Another way that you can support, and that would be this show. I appreciate you listening. I appreciate you sharing. And here's what I would call you to do please email the show. I really do want your feedback. Email the show at canisaythisatchurch at gmail.com. Leave a message on Facebook or Twitter. I really do want to hear your thoughts on the show. Should you feel led, please consider becoming a Patreon supporter. You'll find links to that at the website, in the show notes, everywhere really. And for those of you that have made that plunge, you are literally changing the tempo and the cadence and the quality of the show, and I appreciate each and every one of you more than I can say. I'll speak with you next week. Be blessed. We've only seen